0: This is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Vajani and me, Robert Kornich.
1: And we're back again. I saw the Bentley outside, so I realised Robert, <laughs> used to be here.
0: Well, you know what it's like. I did have a trouble getting it up the stairs, though. Uh, for those of you who don't know where we are today, we are in the Visa Innovation Centre. And the Visa Innovation Centre is on the first floor in the massive building in Paddington, in Sheldon Square. And yeah, that car is something.
1: And I think Visa have been very complimentary. Not only have they catered for you with a Bentley, there's even an area where it's like the underground network, so they've thought about me as well.
0: Well, they've also got a scooter out there, I noticed, (laughs) Park, and a remote-controlled one. But that is where the future's coming, the Internet of Things. That car is completely interactive. Talking of David Hasloth, is back to the future almost. (laughs) So. so
1: let's talk to our guest who will actually know more about what we're doing here and actually more about the company. So which company so, are we here? It's a small one, right? So yeah. We'll start
0: oh, oh, it. They've just started, The begins with a V. I know it's, a, it's, like, yes. it's somewhere near the alpha, a very small word.
1: Reminds me of Esther.
0: Visa. 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 V- that's it, Visa. So who, who have we got with us today, Suresh?
2: Bill, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm, I'm Bill Gaida. I'm the head of digital partnerships and innovation for, here at Visa in Europe. Um, I've been with Visa nine years and have lived the last two and a half years uh, here in, in London. And do they let you out of this first floor innovation studio? They do, actually. I spend a lot of my time talking to customers in the UK and throughout Europe because there's a lot of interest in the space.
0: I mean, I think Visa's been really out there with all the latest uh, equipment and, and this whole Internet of Things. Do you feel this buzz of innovation when you come into it? Because I can see all the flags of the different countries as we walk through the the area, and there's just a real buzz of uh, in excitement here. What what sort of things are you,
2: are you working on? Yeah, I mean, Europe really is, I think, kind of the, the hotbed for innovation and payments. It's led the way for several years. Some of the things I look at, are what's happening in terms of biometrics. Mm-hmm. You know, moving from just fingerprints to facial recognition to Irish scanning to, to the way that you walk to voice recognition. Wow. And so we're seeing a lot of attention in terms of how we authenticate people differently using biometrics. I think that's a consumer technology that's that's really taking off.
0: And it's strange how that has come in. You see it in films and that, where they, they've they got gate technology checking who that person was walking by. And, and now that's coming into to, to our real lives. And we, we often see that science fiction
2: becomes... Reality. And in the case of biometrics, because of it being embedded on a mobile phone, it's happened very quickly.
1: And Bill, I was going to say, from a personal perspective, so not from a, a visa perspective, but what's the best innovation that you've seen that you were impressed with? And the reason I'm saying that it, it might not be, you know, the contact with it might be something as simple as, you know, having a, a coffee mug where you can pay with a coffee mug or something. But you personally, what's been something that's blown away that? maybe didn't have a lot of traction, but something that you were really impressed
2: with. Yeah, you mentioned one, actually wearables is really interesting. So we've seen whether it's watches, but now even fine jewelry. So the ability for people to buy a piece of fine jewelry and pay with the ring. And in fact, you know, I've had an experience where I was paying with the payment ring and the person on the other side thought I was trying to make a fraudulent techno- transaction because they'd never <laughs> seen it before. So they called the manager over and they're threatening to call the police because no one believed you could make a payment using a piece of jewelry. So, But that's now becoming commonplace. So that's interesting. I think the thing for me is the more and more ways I use Amazon Echo for payments, to order pizza, to order Uber, to order everyday groceries. Um, you know, My wife and I use uh, Amazon Echo all the time now. And I think that's an amazing piece, piece of kit.
0: So the, the whole voice recognition, the ability to link it to a payment account yeah. and then make the payment
2: it, all seamless. Right. And if you think about it, when we get to where natural voice is really accurate and really secure, that is the way people want to conduct commerce is with course, your voice, yeah. right? And we're starting to see a tremendous amount of progress there.
0: So that's in relation to the, to the way in which you authenticate the payment, I guess, the, the, the voice or the, the, the fingerprint or the iris scan. The gate is quite interesting. So the Amazon store that they, they did in the U.S., how was that working?
2: Yeah, Amazon Go. And, in fact, it started with Amazon Go in the U.S. And I think they recently announced that they plan to launch 3,000 stores wow. in the next year in wow. the U.S. So that you know, obviously the experiment's been a success. We're also working with U.K. and European retailers on that same experience. And so the idea is you download the app, you put your card in the app. And then they set up these special stores, and through a combination of what we call microlocation, so being able to pinpoint me within inches, not meters, RFID tags, so you know where every item is, uh, remote sensors, they're able to complete this transaction or this experience where I walk in, I fill my bag full of groceries, and I walk out. I said, again, if voice is the way you want to order things online because it's so natural and intuitive, if you want to go somewhere in person, the ideal experience for a lot of people is, I walk in, I fill my bag, and I walk out. And, and that's what Amazon Go does, and as I said, we're seeing a lot of that in Europe as well.
1: So that's an interesting example of something from kind of North America coming to Europe. What I'd like to get your views on is, where do you see the cultural differences? And, and, and what I mean by that is, we all know that, you know when it comes to almost anything, Silicon Valley is number one. They're ahead of the game in innovation, in everything, except payments where it seems like Europe, and particularly London, seems to rule the roost. So you've kind of experienced it from elements from both sides. And what are your thoughts in the different mindsets? And uh, some of the innovate? I remember um, I was at a conference in, in the US and I had a payments ring. And I was talking about the payments ring and people were blown away by it. But when I came off stage, the first question they asked me wasn't about the ring. They asked me, how do I remember my pin for
2: my card? Oh, <laughs> so. my God. Right. Well, this is this is the thing. I mean, to, to the point, we've had chip and pin technology in Europe for more than 20 years. And it's just being rolled out in the U.S. Wow. Contactless has been widespread in Europe for 10 years. Right? It's just getting rolled up in the U.S. Contactless Transit, so Transport for London, which is really the impetus in, in terms of the growth in London, yeah. you know, has been now two or three years. And I think now more than 60%. Of every transaction on the TFL is a contactless transaction.
0: And how much has that sped up the whole ability to
2: do transportation and well, it's brilliant isn't it? Customer experience but what happens is if you know you're gonna use your phone or your contactless card at the transit center all of a sudden the newspaper agent, the coffee shop, the quick service restaurant, they all start to drive contactless usage as well and that's what we've seen in London and other centers that have kind of started with transit. So I mean Europe I think is, is demonstrated this willingness to both standardize very quickly and adopt new technologies, right? We've got some very innovative markets. You know, Europe is not homogeneous. You know, Poland is a very advanced um, payments market. The UK is an advanced uh, payments market. France and Spain, you know, aren't very far behind. And so we've got these kind of pioneer markets. Um, and then because we have this common regulation, it can be driven very quickly once we standardize it.
0: That's cool. So it's like, and it mushrooms out, doesn't it? As it mushrooms you say. out. it's a, it's a mushroom effect. So you, you have one center like the TFL and then as you say you then get the conveniences around it and then people get so used to doing it then other stores follow suit and it's certainly good on the the fast food the the sort of eat I think was the first uh, UK contactless and I think it's that growth effect isn't it
2: yeah and we've seen it market after market and again in many markets you see it start with transit and then balloon out and what's interesting is when I looked at it 10 years ago when we invented contactless we thought it would be 10 or 15 years before it would be really cash displacement. But people's willingness now to take out a card for a pound transaction or an ADP transaction, which was almost all done in, in yeah. by cash you know, and not was that long ago. And it pushed back
0: as well because the retailers didn't want it to, right. at that stage. But now the
2: ability to provide that customer experience, more throughput, merchants are going to follow their customers. And if customers want to pay with contactless, that's what they're going to do.
0: And so the flip side of of that whole piece on on contactless and ease of use of the consumer is this push for things like strong factor authentication in Europe, the cybersecurity side, and the anti-fraud. How do you see that flip side? And and what are you doing in the innovation center to sort of build out solutions that don't reduce the customer experience,
2: but build in that security? It's a great question. And, And the first thing I'd say is, Every technology in payments is more secure than the last one. So chip and pin is more secure than MagStripe, right? Biometric authentication on a phone is more secure than chip and pin. What we're doing with all this passive biometrics is going to be more secure because of the number of ways we can do it than just single biometric. And so the technology continues to get more and more secure. But there's two pieces to it. One is consumer education. People have to be comfortable that it's more secure. People have, have to be comfortable that using my phone is as safe as using chip and pin because it's what they're used to for 20 years. And so there's a ton of work we've got to do to make customers understand that technology gets more secure. But on specifically on the regulation, there's a workshop going on today with a lot of our digital partners specifically on strong customer authentication because we have to adhere to the regulation on the one hand, but we don't want to stop that progress towards those rich, secure, kind of seamless consumer transactions. And so we look at things like how we make biometrics a standard that the regulators understand is a form of authentication you know, that we can use on, on transactions. We, we look at things, what we call light white lists. If I use a merchant three or four times a week for the same kind of transactions and we can demonstrate that trust relationship, do we really need to authenticate that transaction twice every Not time, yet. right? Yeah. So these are the kind of discussions we're having where we absolutely you know, need to adhere to the, 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 the regulation. But we we can't put more friction back into the experience because consumers expect something else.
1: Exactly. Now, Robert, I'm going to let you go into a bit of confusion. However, before you do that, there's one question I have to ask. So, Bill, the pain point, right? So I'm talking about Visa Inc. buying this new company called Visa Europe, which, uh, you know, you could argue that it was almost a bit of a uh, kind of protection racket with all the banks that were members. And they were like, we're a part of this club and we'll listen to anybody, we won't let you in. What has been the pain points? Because we have seen a real big turnaround of recent. So you know what were the pain points? Because I can see some big changes and I would love to hear what your views are from the inside.
2: I mean, the good news was that Visa Inc and Visa Europe were close from the start, right? So we had an extremely good working relationship. We shared the same brand, people were moving back and forth. And so it wasn't in many ways a typical kind of acquisition. We started with a lot of the same DNA. But like any, any acquisition, there are issues around integration, right? The, the, whether it's the employee handbook or the various back office systems that have to be done. And we had, you know, the same issues that anyone would have trying to put two big companies together in terms of trying to merge the systems, email systems, communication systems, HR systems, payroll systems. Those are, those are always going to be, you know, the, the things that anyone has to do. We had the added complication that we wanted to join networks. And we've just finished moving Europe into the Visa global network. And so okay. we're all on the same processing network now, which means we can bring all of those things that we do in all of our other markets to our customers in Visa as well. It was a massive undertaking that, again, a lot of acquisitions would have had to go through. So I would say that was a pain point, but we went through with flying colors.
0: And does, does that make it easier for processor to integrate with you globally
2: now rather well, than this regional by region thing in the past? Absolutely. So there was, you know global re- visa and then a big region called Europe that was separate on a same different processing sy- system, a different authentication system, now it's all one. And so if you think about merchants that are really global, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, etc., you know, it's really easier so they now don't for want us. multiple integrations. They, integration. they do multiple integrations. What about so. the
1: staff mindset? You know, it was kind of like, they could coast, right?
2: right. Before.
1: You can't coast
2: now. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, but again, because... There was so much interaction, I think, that most of Visa Europe was pretty familiar with the competitive and kind of market-driven DNA that Visa has. You know, we did have a consultation process, and we've seen, you know, a lot of people leave Visa, and then even more people come back. Visa's bigger now than it was, you know, in the acquisition. But you're right, different skill sets, there were perhaps old mindsets that had to leave, new mindsets had to come in, and thank goodness we're, we're done that process now and moving forward.
0: So, I'm going to dive into the bin of confusion, and we know that it does have some uh, tough questions. I think we programmed the bin to look at who our guest was today, so let let me dive in now. Oh, I don't know whether you're going to like this one. Visa said that the outage back in June wasn't a hack or a cyber attack.
2: What was it? And can you make sure it doesn't happen again? Bit of a tough one. No, this this was obviously a, a very difficult issue for Visa this past year. First thing I can say, it was an extremely rare failure of a piece of hardware, which almost never happens. In fact, a piece of hardware failed twice. Right. The good news is we were able to get the uh, um, the authorization network up and running. You know, we've uh, we're working with both the banks and the regulators, you know, to take a look at what happened. And I would say. You know, it's impossible to say that a piece of hardware is never going to fail, although it almost never does. The key for us is how resilient is Visa's system to use partners to back up the authorization system if and when it ever goes down, which is extremely unlikely. How do we improve on the communications that I think were good, but, but, you know, could be improved on? How quickly did we get to the answer that it was a hardware system, not software? Because it's almost always software. Exactly, yeah. And in this case, it wasn't. And so we're looking at... Jeez, how do we get to those answers quicker that allows us to look at alternative pieces of hardware talk to vendors etc And so I, I can assure you know your listeners it was not um, a hack or a cyber attack an extremely rare occurrence and obviously you know unlikely to happen again and I think for us the, the biggest thing is if, if, if anything like that does happen again, how we recover quickly and communicate with everybody I think Thank you one thing that uh, was very interesting yeah.
1: was the way that you communicated as soon as it happened. Uh, and the transparency and the openness, which is quite a fresh approach, because in the old days, you wouldn't have got that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, A, it's required, right? I mean, I think hopefully that's what, what, what Visa stands for. It, it doesn't, you know, take away from some of the pain that the merchants and the consumers were feeling for those those, those few hours that it was down. But as I said, you know, we'll continue to improve on our communications and, and do everything to prevent it from happening again. Your turn, Suresh. Dive in. Hi, right,
1: okay. Yes, this is an interesting one. So... One of the kind of things that have grown out of Visa of recent is this kind of new fintech division. What's interesting is that they've almost, you know, parked the term prepaid and kind of launched this fintech division because I guess a lot of these new fintechs are using prepaid as the as the rails. But you've kind of saying, okay, we're not going to operate at this prepaid level, but at this fintech level. And, you know, you could probably argue that on the prepaid level, you've been asleep for a number of years. So. What's the plan? How has this come about?
2: No, I think, I think it's a good question. So th- there's no question that, that Visa was a little late identifying how quickly the fintech sector was going to grow. And our traditional competitors, I think, were faster off the mark dealing with the early entrants. I think in the last several months, starting this past January, we've developed an entire fintech program. So we've got 30 people in Europe that are just responsible for building relationships and commercial deals with these emerging fintechs. We've developed a process that takes a nine-month onboarding process historically to four weeks. So we're easy to deal with and we can get those first hundred cards into a new fintech's hands so they can start experimenting with new consumer use cases. We've changed the way we think about how we ask a small company for collateral. What are membership requirements? How flexible we can be on card art, as an example. Because they all want to do new things with customers and with our technology. And so we've developed this, this program to actively approach them get them onboarded very quickly, demonstrate that both commercially and in other ways we're easier to work with. And I'm happy to say that since this program was um, initiated in January, we are winning more than our share of deals. And it's been a turnaround for Visa, because to your point, I think we're a little slow to the party.
1: And I'm just wondering, if it was Visa Europe and you you had all the members as banks, whether you would have been allowed to be so open with potential
2: new competitors in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say, but you're right. I mean, one of the questions that we ask ourselves around the world when we deal with fintechs is what are our traditional clients going to think of them? Because arguably they can be pretty disruptive. What we've discovered is all of our clients know that the emergence of fintechs is inevitable, number one. Number two, a lot of our big banks want to be the platform that these fintechs work with. And so we're actually facilitating just the growth of the ecosystem. And so we've been surprised when we took our fintech program to our banks around Europe uh, at the kind of support we were getting and in fact we're working with directly with some of our big banks to engage with these fintechs and so it probably would have been more difficult in the association age but i'm happy to say that our banks are welcoming it here
1: and the strategic reason to not use prepaid is it kind of a modernization what are your thoughts on well
2: i mean some of them do use prepaid you yeah. know some of the platform providers or some of these early fintechs kind of start with prepaid but very quickly You know, they see some of the benefits of moving to more flexible products, whether it's debit or credit or even new digital products. I mean, the issue with prepaid is it's even no longer prepaid, but it's not even necessarily a physical form factor. A lot of these fintechs are just putting a credential on your phone with services around transactional credit or enhanced travel or connected accounts. And so the kind of account it is is becoming less relevant as opposed to the services that are on your phone
0: so tell us a bit more about this Bentley that's uh, in front of us at the moment it looks pretty amazing it's got the full visa montage mm-hmm. of colors on it can you talk us through anything about yeah. it
2: so I mean visas are good or, sorry Bentley's a good partner of visas we've been working with them um, I guess almost three years now this is the second Bentley we've had in the Innovation Center and um, this acts as a little bit of a showroom. About 6,000 people walk through and see it on the first floor every day. So they sold the first one. No way. Yeah, yeah. based on, on, on people walking by every day. Robert, uh,
1: don't get any idea. Exactly. <laughs>
2: we, we had to bring it in the window. <coughs> I was going to say, so how did you, you get window, yeah, that big? If you see the window next to it, you'll see it's not permanently installed. It's got bolts. It's the only window on the floor that has bolts because we now can unbolt the window, take it out, and in about an hour, get the Bentley out and one back in. Um, wow. Because, you know, hopefully they're going to sell this one as well. But for this, th- this really represents for us the future of what you, you had talked about earlier, IoT, but specifically the connected car. So if you if you go inside the Bentley, there's a screen that uses all of those sensors and computers and technologies inside the Bentley, coupled with Visa technology and voice recognition to do things like find a fuel station and pre-order fuel or pre-order food at a fuel station, tolls, parking Insurance by the mile, smart contracts, etc. Wow. And so we think that increasingly, if we can combine what we do in the cloud with your, your visa account somewhere in the cloud, and all of this technology that they're putting in cars now, we, we can take all of those experiences around cars. We spend a lot of time in cars, right? It's our second biggest expense after our houses. So how do we how do we create this whole connected and commerce boats. idea. And boats. Yeah, and, boats in England, exactly. And, and private jets. No.
1: You're thinking of Hugh.
2: No. Ah, yes. <laughs> no, exactly. So it's it's really a good experience in terms of combining you know the best of, of, of Bentley and the best of Visa.
0: And to, to drive it, do you need biometrics? Is it like fingerprint or is it voice? This
2: one you don't, but that's increasingly what's coming. Right, especially if you think so about you need a key for this. You do well. Oh. No, you do not need a key oh. for this. But if you think about ride sharing as an example, which is coming, yeah. So we're not going to own cars in the future. A lot of us, we're we're just going to use them when we need them. Well, all of those are going to depend on things like biometrics. You're going to have to have some kind of payment source before you get in them. They're going to want to va- validate that you have a. A, a, an operator's license or whatever permits required this is all coming and so it's just they use the like corner. the amazon
0: go type technology it, it, exactly right it'll be amazon wow. go type technology so you as you get in the car it, it it clicks on that you're in it how many miles you've
2: been in it you get out right it'll, it'll, it'll recognize really, your face and set up the seat the way you want to it'll have all your entertainment options there wow. uh that's what's gonna it Follows happen. you around yeah it follows you around
1: so the banks love it or hate them or should i say they love it or hate it but mainly hate it it's cryptocurrencies mm. right we have governments shutting down cryptocurrencies you have governments embracing it although the latter are very few what is the real stance with visa when it comes to crypto and are you open for people that want to do a crypto card or because people find it difficult and can't navigate the space so what's your general view and shed some light on this yeah. Very dark topic.
2: So we actually have a couple of debit cards today that are linked to cryptocurrencies. Right. But that being said, I own a bit of Bitcoin on my Coinbase wallet. I don't believe it's going to be a widespread consumer currency. There is a lot of regulation risk. The, The prices are fluctuating too much for people to really treat it like money. It's very complicated technology. And with the stroke of a pen, a government could decide to kind of wish it away, right? And so I think there's too much volatility for people to treat it really like money because they need money to be kind of solid. We have actually invested in a company called Chain. We're involved in a number of proof of concepts using blockchain, not Bitcoin, to take our network and the what we call the smart contract capabilities of Bitcoin, put them together and do new kinds of payments that we're not really good at. I'll just give one example. In the Internet of Things, they say that connected car, we could see transactions that are like a penny or a tenth of a penny taking place thousands and thousands of times a day as information is shared. Our network is no good at that. But Bitcoin or blockchain is. You take blockchain doing that and then every millionth transaction we do a real visa transaction so real money can move from A to B. We think that's interesting. So we like blockchain. We think it's early days. It's got a lot of potential. I personally don't think Bitcoin is going to be widespread for consumers. But there are a couple cryptocurrency visa products out there. And you're open for more. Open for more.
0: And I think that's I mean, I think that's really open. And I think certainly the people I'm dealing with now want to see that they can access their cryptocurrencies through a card so they can go into fiat. So the exchange will do the conversion for them and they can spend because as you said, it's not commonplace. You can't go and spend it in your supermarket, but you might be able to spend it at Amazon.
2: Right. And that's our principle is as long as the cryptocurrency converts it to fiat before it hits the Visa network, because we need our merchants and, and everyone else to understand that real money at a certain value is moving from A to B. Yeah, That's how we kind of accommodate cryptocurrencies. And so that volatility happens before it hits the Visa network because you know once people have a certain expectation about how Visa works.
0: And certainly with the, the new technologies of being able to authenticate whether the coin's previously been used on the dark web or if it's previously been used for ransomware or something like that, effectively gives you a lot more proof of funds, as it were, against the customers on, on these currencies now that we never we never had this technology before and now it's been developed and it's quite quick.
2: Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, whether it's cryptocurrency or not, we still have, to your point, anti money laundering, you know, your customer requirements and they have to fulfill those as well.
0: Exactly. And with the fifth money laundering directive coming into Europe next year, that will require all crypto exchanges to effectively follow AML laws so I think a lot of them are doing it ahead of time because they know it's coming in anyway it's inevitable I've got this final question in the bin of confusion let me uh, just reach in there Brexit it's a topic we're all all looking at if it's a a hard Brexit with no agreement because Theresa May's done whatever she's done what's Visa's position what's going to happen
2: yeah, so, so for us, and obviously we're looking at a number of Brexit scenarios, the good news is Visa's already represented with registered offices in every market in Europe. And we've got hundreds of employees you know, outside of the UK, and so I think we're, we're in good shape there. We're, we're looking really closely at the data requirements, because we have a big data center here in the UK, and we want to make sure that we can still centrally coordinate that data, and we're looking at whether or not we'd have to have another data center, in ex- as an example, in, in the rest of Europe in order to satisfy, accommodate, GDP, satisfy yeah. GDPR and how the data requirements are shaping up. So that's that's a continuing piece of analysis and we just have to see where, where the agreement ends up on the whole idea of data and data sharing. But again, you know, we're widespread in Europe, big parts of our business outside of the UK. We're actually hiring more people outside of the UK than were happening in the UK and that's a concerted effort you know, to, be, to get more people into the regions and into the markets and closer to our customers. And I think that's, that actually supports kind of what, what may happen, depending on, on what version of Brexit there is.
1: And what region outside of the UK would you say you guys are growing? It's growing the quickest.
2: Um, so I think highest? a couple. So, I mean, outside of the UK and Ireland, France is a big market for us. Germany, huge potential. The biggest market in Europe, not that advanced in terms of payments. And so a lot of potential there. And then, of course, Spain. So those are kind of rounding out the top five or six and then, then you think about selected other interesting markets, Poland's emerging, Italy's sizable, et cetera. But it's really those, those top five that really define Europe in terms of payments today.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. No, no, that's good. And in front of you, these two two key fobs, one says scooter uh, and one says Bentley. So literally, we just click them and, and that activates. Yeah? That's it. Car's, car's ready to go. There's not much gas in it, but the car's ready to go. Suresh, take the scooter. We'll be seeing you soon. Bill, I'm I'm taking the Bentley. I hope it gets out that window okay. Right. I actually
1: wanted to drive it out of the window.
0: <laughs> I'd use a wrench. A wrench. I, I think it's got a good enough suspension. Yeah, it does. Let's let's put those brakes on and go. Thank Great. you very much, Bill. Thank it's you. been a pleasure.
2: All right. Thank you.